Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, August 1st, 2013. Oh, man. This is going to be a crazy episode. That's all I'm saying. tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, have you ever listened to a popular pastor or preacher and heard something that sounds gospel-ish? You know, like kind of like uh, truthy, um, you know, it's not quite truth, not quite error, but it's not, not really fully, you know, it, it's one of those things you sit there and go, well, it kind of sounds like uh, good n- news. Um, but then, you know, you kind of push on it and then the thing comes tumbling down and you realize, ooh, yeah, that wasn't really the good news now, was it? Yeah, in the first hour today of uh, Fighting for the Faith, we're going to do two segments uh, today where we get something that sounds kind of gospel-ish, but really not. Um, yeah, so th- the idea here is, is that the details of the good news matter. Okay, The details of the good news matter, and it must be shown from Scripture in context. In context, context, context. Um, it's vital that you you get the context right. I mean, what is it with all of these pastors and preachers and teachers who just rip verses out of context and then just weave them into the tapestry of their own theological making and and just completely ignore what these uh, passages say? It's a form of, um, if you would, irrational hermeneutics. Irrational hermeneutics. You know, and I don't know if I've used this example before, but I, I may have. But uh, the idea is this, is that, you know, I'm a parent. Many of you listeners are parents. And let's say you leave a note for your children. Now, this note says something different than the other notes I've talked about here. This note says, honey, I love you. Don't eat the ice cream. Okay, don't eat the ice cream while I'm gone. I need it for a dessert. I'll be back shortly kind of thing. You know, so. You come back, you know, after doing your errand, and there's your your smiling, bright, sunny child, you know, this uh, little angelic being there. And you see the angelic being <clears throat> eating the ice cream that you left the note saying, don't eat the ice cream. And you say to your child, what are you doing? The note said, don't eat the ice cream. And then the child says, ah, uh, ah. Uh, 
here's how I read the note. The note said, eat the ice cream. And you just you go, you can't do that. Oh, it says right there. See, mom, there's your handwriting. Or dad, there's your handwriting. It says, eat the ice cream. And they just ignore the word don't in front of it, right? Well, it's like, it's like this is what people do with God's word. You know, the, who cares what the sentence itself says? They just, you know, take it and mangle it and make it say something that it doesn't say by ignoring <laughs> the context. You know, you get what I'm saying. It's just, ah, it's, it's absolutely frustrating. In fact, <clears throat> let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith because I, mean, just, I can't believe that this is what we're going to be talking about. So I'm trying to figure out the right order for doing this, okay? I think what we'll do is we're going to start off with a um, a Cindy Jacobs, Cindy and Mike Jacobs update from the God Knows TV. So this will be a new apostolic reformation update with the Mike and Cindy Jacobs from their God Knows TV. And in this segment that we're going to be listening to, they're going to talk about how apparently in, in on the cross or something attached to the gospel – that the implication is is that God is going back and mending history, and <laughs> how they get to this, you just want to smash your head against a brick wall and saying, "Did you people pass first grade?" You know, it's yeah. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> sorry if I sound a little like upset and impassioned. It's because in preparation for this program, I had to listen to this a few times and take notes on it. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. <clears throat> yeah, <clears throat> excuse me, excuse me. I I need to go see my therapist about, about my upsetness regarding this. And then what we're going to do, you know, kind of in our uh, you know similar to the theme, but a little bit different. Um, remember the Kong He story we did a few days ago, where Kong He claims that God apologized to him. Well, apparently the folks over at City Harvest Church are claiming that the, that God's you know, this apology is being taken out of context but what's really funny is is that <laughs> apparently the folks there in at City Harvest Church also didn't pass first grade English <laughs> because their explanation about how this was taken out of context and what it really means it it shows that it wasn't taken out of context they don't know what it means to take something out of context and <clears throat> anyway sorry do I do I sound <laughs> Yeah, this is just one of those weird days. Just a weird day. Anyway, and then, then, um, we've got another news story from Charisma News. You know, an entire website dedicated to news for the charismatic movement. There's, <laughs> I'm so sorry. This is just, again, it's one of those days. There's, there's the headline reads that there's a lawyer accusing Pilate of judicial misconduct. And there's a, a, a an attorney, no joke, an attorney I forget which <laughs> which country he's from, but there's a there's an attorney who's trying to overturn G the 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 verdict of Jesus's trial. <laughs> it's just yeah, and then to <laughs> to end off the insanity that is the first hour, we will be listening to um, Joel Osteen talk about how grace is looking for you. Now, this is something that sounds something like the gospel, but um, when you um, go back and kind of push on what Joel Osteen's saying, this ain't the gospel at all. It doesn't make any sense. And then talking about not making sense, we're going to, in hour number two, we're going to head back to Montana 
to uh, Helena, Montana, to uh, narrate church, uh, Adam Hushka. Uh, if you remember, I reviewed one of his sermons uh, when I was uh, speaking at the um, the Reformation Montana uh, of conference. I did a, a live sermon review there, and then we ended up reviewing the whole thing uh, the, the week after when I came back. And so this will be our second review of an Adam Hushka sermon. And talk about not making any sense. No joke. The sermon is about the danger of surprises. And, you know, I don't want to blow it for you, so I, I don't want to ruin the surprise. <laughs> and when, it, you know, by the way, if you end up listening to this episode twice and you know what happens in hour number two, that little joke is going to crack you up. Uh, yeah, because I don't want to ruin the surprise for you. But, oh, man, it's, you know, I, I don't know how to describe it, okay? Here's kind of the, the, the nub of my frustration at the moment. Okay, if you are familiar with church history, okay, you're familiar with the battles that have occurred within the within the church, uh, you know, across its two millennia of its history, um, and you know the subtlety of the the uh, the her- of the heresies that the, the church has had to fight. For instance, the Arian heresy. Man, that was a nasty heresy. Arius was brilliant and he was subtle and he was nuanced and the error that he put forward was so slick and so well thought out and the Arians did their darndest to argue it and boy did they 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 tried to argue it biblically and 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 there were times when <clears throat> in Christianity where the the you know the 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 foes that that have had to be faced were absolutely <clears throat> it wasn't a given that that uh, orthodoxy was going to win i mean there i mean seriously it, it it came down to one person like athanasius or you know standing up against the heretics and having to fight across a lifetime to to get people to listen to what the scriptures say to to overcome the heresies that christianity faced okay well, we don't have um, that kind of a foe. No, um, it, it's I. It's well, we've the church has been taken over by stupid, and I know that doesn't sound right. I know that sounds kind of mean, but so much of what we're facing um, is it's just it's it's dumb. We've we've been overcome not by some great argument, by some slick nuanced theology we have for the most part been taken over by dumb and dumber the you know the the characters from dumb and dumber and and it to believe to actually face the fact that what has happened to the church is that it in large segments of it you know people are not engaging the brains that god has given them and it's as if they don't even know how to use them and it's like as if they've been sent this really strong delusion for them to believe a lie. And the lie, it doesn't matter how ridiculous it is. It doesn't matter how absurd it is. It doesn't matter how irrational it is. The heresies that they're falling for, the false doctrine that they're falling for, the teaching that they're falling for is just ridiculous. You know, we're not facing some major foe who's really got a sharp sword and some really slick... No, we, we've basically fallen to dumb. And I mean, r- like, you know, um, really, really, really dumb. 
you know, like dumber than rocks kind of stuff. And I don't mean to insult rocks, but that's kind of what we've faced. The church has been taken over by dumb and dumber. And I'm not that brilliant of a guy. And it's just weird anyway. So, I mean, that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. And, you know, I apologize. I know that doesn't sound nice. It sounds rather insulting. But if you stop and think about what's going on here... I think you might agree with me that um, much of the church has fallen to dumb and even dumber. So <clears throat> you talk about the dumbing down of the church. Anyway, so that's what we're going to talk about. That's what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I, <clears throat> Because of what it is that you're going to hear, and I, again, I... I Sometimes I play these warnings because, you know, they're, they're, it's kind of funny, you know. Um, but today I've got to play our warning because I really don't want you to hurt yourself while listening to today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Oh, and by the way, by the way, um, during the first break today, we will be premiering another new, brand new Max Holiday's uh, Church Day Soleil sketch featuring Mildred. Now, it's not a Sessions with Mildred sketch. It, but Mildred is in it, and um, it's it's um, how do I describe it? It's it's uh, Mildred's Mildred's walk to Emmaus experience. That's the best way I can put it. But I don't want to say anything more. So keep that in mind. That's that's some you know <clears throat> something to look forward to in um, <clears throat> our uh, during the you know the first break. So I, I've got to play our warning today. But today, I in all seriousness, be careful while listening to today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I don't want you to get hurt. Warning: Fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities: operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. All right, you've been warned. The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. The laboratory mice, the genes have been sliced. The Pinky, the Pinky and the Brain. Brain, 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 brain. Before each night is done, their plan will be unfurled by the dawning of the sun. They'll take over the world. The pinky and the brain, yes, pinky and the brain. The twilight campaign is easy to explain. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overthrow the earth. The pinky, the pinky and the brain, 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 Here's Mike and Cindy Jacobs discussing um, something that sounds gospel-ish, but it's not really the gospel. And uh, this is from their God Knows television program about mending history. Here we go. Hi, welcome to God Knows. Well, Mike, we've been talking uh, a little bit on a series called Mending History. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, this is this is an exciting concept. You know, I I was just thinking of an exciting concept, mending history. Uh-huh. Where in the Bible does it clearly say that God mends people's histories. About, you know, we've heard people say, I want to be a history maker. We sing songs about being history makers. Derry Prince has written a book, Shaping History Through Prayer mm-hmm. and Fasting. That's, and really, if we want to talk about shaping history, you know, we're thinking about maybe even future things. But God often restores our history as well as shapes it. Uh huh. Really, God often restores our history. What does that even mean? Is this like the movie Back to the Future, where Marty McFly goes back in history and changes things and mends things up? Is that what you're talking about? You know, just the kinds of amending in that. Yeah. Well, mending history. In fact, we take this from Ephesians 4, 12, where it talks about the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Okay, now, before before I let her explain to you how she gets this idea of mending history from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, let's take a look at it in context and wait till you hear this argument. <laughs> like I said, I might end up beating something, but beating my head against a brick wall today. Ephesians chapter four. Okay, I'll start at verse nine. Verse, just give it a little bit of context here. In saying that he, that's Christ, ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, the shepherds the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by the craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, just on a cold reading in context there, did you notice anything about Christ or God sometimes going back and, quote, mending history? Okay, let me read verse 12 again. Pay real close attention here. You ready? To equip the saints for work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. That's all of verse 12. And when I read that to you, did you see anything in there or hear anything in there about um, mending history? Now, if you're thinking, is this a trick? Is this a joke? No, it's no joke. This, this She said, Ephesians 4, 12. Did you see anything in there about mending history? The answer is, no, I, I didn't hear anything. Did you hear anything? I didn't hear anything. Well, so how do you get the idea that God sometimes goes back and mends history from Ephesians 4.12? Are you ready? Again, take all of your safety precautions. Here we go. So that word is like katatismos. It literally means to like set a bone. Yeah. That's true. So God wants to go back into your life and restore. Okay. 
Yeah. Did, did, did you hear that? Let me back up the audio just a smidge so that you can catch what it is that she's saying. Um, yeah. Um, she referenced the word from the Greek word for equip. Uh, katatismos. Okay. Um, katartismos. And she says that word means to set a bone. Therefore, God wants to mend history. No joke. Listen again. But God often restores our history as well as shapes it. Mm-hmm. You know, just the kinds of amending a net. Yeah. Well, mending history. In fact, we take this from Ephesians 4, 12, where it talks about the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Mm. So that word is like katechismos. It literally means to like set a bone. Yeah, that's true. So God wants to go back into your life and restore. We know the Bible says in the book. (laughs) So because the Greek word for equip is katartismos, which means to set a bone. That's just the literal, you know, uh, the literal word for word of the word itself. Um, that means that God wants to mend the history in your life. No, it doesn't mean that at all. And she shows that she has no clue how to even use a Greek lexicon. <clears throat> By the way, yeah, the idea here is this, okay? When you read a dictionary, okay, you, lo- you look up a word in a dictionary, there, oftentimes there's multiple definitions for a word and how it's used in context determines what it means. Now, in, the Greek, in a Greek lexicon, it's similar to an English dictionary, but there's a little bit of a difference, especially if you like using BDAG, which is like the premier uh, Greek New Testament as well as Apostolic Church Fathers uh, lexicon, Okay. In, in there, oftentimes they'll give you the origin of a particular Greek word going back to its earliest usage in classical Greek. Okay, now how it's used in Koine Greek oftentimes is different than how it's used in classical Greek, but they'll give you an example of like an ancient of an ancient use and what it meant there, and then they'll give you the more up to date uh, you know definition of how it was used during the time uh, of the Koine period when Koine Greek was the uh, lingua franca of the uh, of the Mediterranean world during you know the uh, b- before Christ and after Christ you know in the in the you know a little over a century, century and a half before Christ and then after Christ. So here's, here's looking at BDAG, Katartismos, okay? Okay, two entries were found early on in the writings of Serranus, okay? Serranus 150, and this is in classical Greek, and it literally meant setting of a bone, etc. okay? However, okay, more recently, new documents show that it means restoration, okay, or in a figurative sense, equipping or use of equipment into, uh, you know, for service, for training, um, you know, things like that. that. That's the idea of the word. So they give you that it's ancient use and what, <clears throat> what, Cindy Jacobs did is she goes back and she finds a Greek lexicon that finds one of the most ancient uses of it. And it's most ancient use. The word meant setting of a bone. But the thing is, is that this doesn't make any sense if you stick this into this verse. Okay. Um, See if the verse makes any sense to you if I stick in the, the phrase setting of a bone. Okay. I'll start at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and the teachers to set a bone the saints for the work of ministry for building up of the body of Christ. Nope. 
It doesn't work. And by the way, setting of a bone doesn't mean mending history. I mean, this is ridiculous. This is like Jim Staley silly. You know, it's, you know, cracking Hebrew codes here. She thinks she's cracked a code here. See if this if the the passage makes sense when I change the word equip to uh, to mend history. Okay, I'll, let me again. I'll start at verse eleven. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to mend history, the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Answer: No, it doesn't work. Okay, this is just basic basic first second third grade english here i mean it doesn't work so how did she get this idea that uh god wants to mend your history well because the word for equip in ephesians chapter 4 verse 12 is katartismos in its most ancient form it meant setting of a bone it's this is absurd i mean this is ridiculous How anybody takes these people seriously is beyond me. Well, she has another verse she would like to add to this, but I'm going to back it up just a little bit so you can hear this looniness in context. Listen again. In fact, we take this from Ephesians 4, 12, where it talks about the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Mm. So that word is like katatismos. It literally means to like set a bone. Yeah, that's true. So God wants to go back into your life and restore. When, uh, uh. Now the Bible says in the book of Joel, he wants to restore the years that locusts have eaten up in your life. Yeah, that's not what Joel is saying. Um, by the way, this is where a good um, study Bible will help. Um, let me let me just read to you the introduction to the prophet Joel from the, you know from the ESV Bible. Here's what it says. Little is known about the prophet Joel, although his concern for Judah and Jerusalem suggests that he ministered in Judah. Joel told of, told of a locust plague that had struck Israel and which he said foreshadowed the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was a time greatly anticipated by the Israelites because they believed that God would then judge the nations and restore Israel to her former glory. Yet, said Joel, God would punish not only the nations but unfaithful Israel as well. Joel urged everyone to repent and told of a day when God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. That day has arrived. It was the first Christian Pentecost. While the date of the book of Joel is uncertain, its message is valid for all time. So let's take a look at what's going on in Joel here. And uh, she just wants to key in on Joel chapter 2, verse 25. that says that I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. Yeah, um, that but that's no context there. And um, there's repentance in the book of Joel that precedes all of that. <clears throat> let me let me read. I'll just read a little bit of Joel here. Joel chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off the bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. 
Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple, and all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. It is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds' cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them, even the flocks of the sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured pasture of the pastures of the wilderness. I mean, that's just terrible. Exactly. Right? So this is, you know, this is a picture of God's judgment and his wrath, and he's calling Israel and the nations to repent. And so you don't get to chapter 2, verse 25, where God forgives and then God blesses and God restores without first the sackcloth, the ashes, the repentance, and the forgiveness of sins. You know, somebody like uh, Cindy here just likes to skip right over all that repentance and sin stuff and just go right, oh, God's promised to just mend your nets and he's promised to restore what the locusts have stolen from you. And she just chatters on without knowing anything about what she's talking about. We can well, How does he do it? Well, sometimes people give you a prophetic word. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember... You're thinking, what did she just say? Yeah, let me back this up so you can hear it in context. Yeah, here we go again. In the book of Joel, he wants to restore the years that locusts have eaten up in your life. Well, how does he do it? Well, sometimes people give you a prophetic word. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember when we moved here to Texas, we moved back... So God wants to restore what the locusts have taken by giving me a prophetic word. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the lights are on. I mean, her eyeballs are open. Clearly, the woman is alive, but there's something going on in her brain. I don't think it functions. Back to Texas. Remember that uh, Sam Brassfield gave us a prophecy which shocked us. Yeah, it really did. Yeah, and he's, and in the prophecy, he said, God says... I want you to move back to Texas. Well, we've been in Colorado Springs 11 years. It's true. We bought property there. We thought we were going to stay there. But then God is trying to bring us back. In fact, it's very interesting. Uh, we came back to Texas, and and God brought us back to a different part of Dallas. But we mm-hmm. came back to Dallas. But What is she talking about? We had family history here. In Texas. Well, we were both born in Texas. Yeah, we were, we're both native born Texans. Native so. born Texans, yes, we were. But it was fascinating because uh, 
You know, there were things that we recalled in our history that God really brought a joy out of. You know, my dad died here early, you know, at age 49. And there were some things that had happened in Texas that were hard for us. Yeah, there's sorrow associated with your life many times. And, right. But but God will bring you back to an area because he wants to heal that part of you. Yeah, and so by that way, he wants to mend your life. You know, you might be thinking of tragedy that happened. Uh, the loss of a child, uh, the loss of a loved one, you know, but the things like that. Well, but actually God wants to restore to you. Maybe you might have made a, a mistake even, you know, something that was so horrible, you're embarrassed. To- oh, you mean a sin. Yeah. Uh-huh. Why don't you call it that? Think about it. Well, Romans eight twenty eight says all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. Uh. So you made a mistake, but don't worry. God makes all things good work together for good for those who love the Lord. No repentance, no forgiveness of sins. Oh, just, oh, don't worry about it. You might have made a mistake, but don't, don't, don't worry about it. God makes all things work together for good for those who love him. But see, the thing is, is that when you sin, you prove you don't love God. So, yeah, there's that verse doesn't seem to quite apply when you've sinned. You get what I'm saying here? I'm not saying that there's no forgiveness, but the thing is is that she just wants to jump right to the blessing and, avo- and completely avoid repentance and the forgiveness of sins, just like she did in the book of... Anyway, this doesn't make any sense, and, and my brain is hurting, and we need to go to a break. So um, just a reminder, during uh, our first break today, we will be premiering a brand new Max Holiday sketch, which features Mildred, but it's not uh, sessions with Mildred, it's her walk to Emmaus. So if you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Hit the subscribe button there, by the way, there. I, my, I'm Max out of my friends. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we have Kong Hee News and a Joel Osteen update all coming up uh, after this. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Yeah, just up ahead is a path that will lead us to the main highway. Yeah, I, I hear the traffic from here. That was a nice little hike. I do enjoy this trail. It's just a simple three-hour hike. Hey, what's that up ahead? I have no idea. Let's check it out. It looks like a journal of some sort. It's really beat up. Should we read it? Well, we've got nothing better to do. Sounds good to me. Day one. 
Today is my first day of the Emmaus Walk. My church counselor, Gary Sunshine, told me that if I went out into the wilderness and believed and trusted in Jesus, that Jesus would come and walk with me and communicate to me. So I packed enough provisions to last me for a few days. Day two. Still no sign of Jesus. I've dedicated myself to meditating to bring myself closer to his presence. I hope it happens soon. Day three. I think I figured out what I've been doing wrong. I haven't been trusting Jesus enough with my walk. Now I've decided to go to the deeper parts of this jungle because I don't think that Jesus would associate himself with just the fringes of the forest. I think he needs to see that I'm audacious, so I'm going to forget the comforts I've brought entirely. Looks like some of the pages have been ripped out. It doesn't pick up again until... Day 9. Today, my stock of toilet paper ran out, and still no signs from Jesus. I should have enough food to get me back to civilization, but I think that Mr. Sunshine will be disappointed that my journey wasn't more fruitful. I think it's because I wasn't listening hard enough to Jesus. Day nine and a half. I think I'm lost. I think I took a wrong turn. Everything is starting to look really foreign and unfamiliar. Day 14. Today, my tent was attacked by a bear and was ripped to shreds. I just barely escaped, but I'm going to have to start foraging for my own food. I can only hope that I find my way back. Day 34. Today, I came across an indigenous tribe that was building a large metal sphere that looked far superior to any military technology. I was chased by them for about 15 miles. I'm really hungry. Day 42. I don't think I'm ever going to get out, and I just realized that I don't think I left Mr. Snuggles enough food to make it for this long. So far, still no sign of Jesus or enlightenment. I'm beginning to think that Mr. Sunshine was lying about the Emmaus Walk. Day 88. I think I'm done. I've gone through months of hunting for food with... Nothing more than a spork from Chuck E. Cheese's. I'm not even hungry anymore. I don't think that's good. Day 102. If you're reading this, then I hope that you're not as miserably lost as I am. There's no way out. The Emmaus Walk walk is is a trap. If your church even so much as suggests the idea, then run for your life, because once you're on that path, there's no going back. I can promise you that Jesus is not in these woods. I can't blame him. I don't want to be here either. I can't do this anymore. I give up. She must have died while writing it. She wouldn't have written... She would have just said it and then died. Well, on any account, we'll never do an Emmaus walk. Yeah, I hear you there. Wait, 
Have you ever heard of any of the mega pastors doing an Emmaus walk themselves? You know what? I haven't. <laughs> Maybe the world would be better off if they did. <laughs> Purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Hello, I'm Brandon House of WorldviewRadio.com. WorldviewRadio.com is the world's premier biblical worldview online radio network. And now you can take it with you on the go with our free app that you can download free of charge at WorldviewWeekend.com forward slash APP. That's WorldviewWeekend.com forward slash APP. And you'll hear the daily and weekly radio programs by people like T.A. McMahon of The Brian Call, Chris Rosebro of Fighting for the Faith, Usama Dakdok and The Truth About Islam, Noise of Thunder with Chris Pinto, Justin Peters and the Justin Peters Program, Crosstalk, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in Prophecy Today, Jesse Johnson with the Bible Teaching Program of Emmanuel, Dr. John Whitcomb, and Mike Gendron of Proclaiming the Gospel Radio, as well as Carl Tycrib with Forcing Change Radio. All of these biblically-based radio programs are available free of charge at worldviewradio.com and through our free app at worldviewweekend.com forward slash app. Biblical Worldview Radio that you can take with you on the go. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor or pastrix doesn't engage in anything lucid or smart. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute to help keep us going, keep us on the air, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508 
Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we're doing without it. Moving along. From the Christian Post, the headline reads, Kong He's Apology from God, Taken Out of Context, says City Harvest Church. This story just gets weirder. Uh, this is by Nicola Menzi of the Christian Post. The story reads, Kong He, the founding pastor of City Harvest Church in Singapore, who is accused of mishandling church funds, is at the center of more controversy this week after a statement he made at a conference was interpreted by some as an apology from God. The charismatic Christian pastor told attendees at the event that he heard God tell him, I'm sorry, for the difficulties he has been facing, according to a news report highlighting this portion of his sermon. However, a representative for Pastor Kong told the Christian Post that the minister's remarks have been taken wildly out of context. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was taken out of context. Huh? Now, listen to, <laughs> now, listen to this statement. This is from... Uh, somebody from City Harvest Church, quote, as anyone with basic education in English language ought to be able to tell that the term that the use of the of I I'm so sorry here is not in the context of an apology, but a word of comfort. For example, I'm sorry about your mother's suffering or I'm so sorry you need to go through chemotherapy, said Pastor Kong's spokesperson, whose statement was emailed to the Christian Post. <laughs> Via City Harvest Church's corporate communications department. It's in no way an apology or an admission of guilt as has been suggested, the person added, which was the interpretation of many readers of a Yahoo News Singapore report on Pastor Kong's remarks. Oh, okay. So it was taken wildly out of context. Wildly out of context. But note what was admitted <laughs> from the statement. That what was admitted is, oh, yes, that was God talking to Kong He. And God was saying, I'm sorry, Kong, that you have to go through this. God said that. God said, I'm sorry, Kong. But he didn't mean that he was sorry in the sense of an apology, but sorry in the sense of, I'm, you know, that, you know, I, I feel bad for you that you're going through all of this. Now, in order for the claim that everybody took this portion of the sermon wildly out of context to actually be the case, wildly out of context would be something to the effect of, no, 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 no. Listen, God never talked to Kong. That's not what he was saying. When you put it in context, God wasn't saying anything to Kong or saying anything like, I'm sorry to Kong or anything like that. No, no, this wasn't wildly out of context. All this spokesperson is doing is basically saying, yes, Kong heard from God, and God did say to Kong, I'm sorry, but if you have basic education in English, you should understand the context is a word of comfort, not an apology from God. God wasn't sorry that he was making Kong suffer, but instead was trying to comfort Kong. You, you just can't make this stuff up. I mean words don't mean anything anymore. Wildly out of context doesn't even mean wildly out of context. Now, from another news source, from the charismanews.com website, which has some of the most bizarre stories I have ever seen, the headline reads, Lawyer accuses Pilate, that's, that would be Pontius Pilate, of judicial misconduct and is seeking to nullify Jesus' trial. 
<laughs> yeah, okay. The okay, this is okay, this is by Frederick Nisworthy of um, the Religious News Service and this is posted over at Char- Charisma News. The conviction of Jesus by Pontius Pilate may be the most famous court verdict ever and perhaps the most consequential since it led to Christ's crucifixion and the founding of a global religion. Now, a Kenyan lawyer wants to overturn Pilate's decision, though he wants to keep the faith that flowed from it. The listen. This is a direct quote. Quote, the selective and malicious, malicious prosecution of Jesus violated his human rights, said Dola Indidis, a Roman Catholic who is petitioning the International Court of Justice based at The Hague to nullify Jesus' conviction and death sentence. <laughs> really? So, okay. So apparently, I did not know this, okay? I had no idea that the International Court of Justice based in The Hague has the authority to overturn a death sentence issued by a government that doesn't even exist anymore. (laughs) Really? And what good is it going to do to overturn Jesus' death conviction and death sentence? It was carried out. What has happened to the world? What has happened? I mean, this is absurd. I mean, this is ridiculous. I, uh, I I need to move along. I I, I need to um, move to the next segment, which isn't going to make me any happier, by the way. I just want to let everybody know that things don't get better from this point on at in this episode of Fighting for the Faith. You've been warned. <clears throat> but since we're doing a Joel Osteen update, we need to do this. When I'm feeling lonely, sad as I can be. All by myself, an uncharted island in an endless sea. What makes me happy fills me up with glee. Those bones in my jaw that don't have a flaw, my shiny teeth and me. My shiny teeth that twinkle just like the stars in space. I cannot hit that note. My shiny teeth that sparkle, adding beauty to my face. My shiny teeth that glisten just like a Christmas tree. That's right. That's Chip Skylark and Shiny Teeth and Me. We use that every time we introduce Joel Osteen here at uh, Fighting for the Faith. And we're going to be listening to the opening few minutes. And that's all you need to listen to with a Joel Osteen sermon, by the way. The opening few minutes of his message entitled, Grace is Looking for You. Grace is looking... Now... this sounds gospel-ish, you know, just like Cindy uh, Jacob saying that God wants to mend your history. But then when you start listening to what it is she men- means by God wants to heal your history and where she's getting it from, you sit there and scratch your head and go, what? Well, it's kind of like that. This this sounds gospel-y. I mean, this really sounds like some good news. And, of course, Joel is very good at at his delivery, and he's got really, really bright, shiny, white teeth. And his hair, though, his hair has been getting bigger lately. I don't know if you've noticed that about Joel Osteen. His hair has been getting kind of poofier. But um, here's um, Joel Osteen and his message entitled, Grace is Looking for You. Here we go. 
Yeah, have I mentioned that the Bible talks about the sinner in you, not the cha- – yeah, we move along. Well, God bless you. It's always a joy to come into your homes. And if you're ever in our area, please stop by and be a part of one of our services. I promise you, we'll make you feel right at home. Yeah, we got to play the joke. I mean, he does a joke every time, right? You know? but thanks so much for tuning in, and thank you again for coming out. And I like to start with something funny, and I heard about this man. He was in a dark restaurant. He said to the lady sitting next to him, would you like to hear a blonde joke? She said, well, before you tell me, you should know I'm blonde, six foot tall, and a professional bodybuilder. The lady next to me is blonde, six foot two, and a professional wrestler. And the lady next to her is blonde, six foot five, and the kickboxing champion of the world. Now, do you still want to tell me? He thought about it a moment, said, no, not if I'm going to have to explain it three times. Help me, Jesus. Give me a ride home today. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today, I will be taught the word of God. No, you won't. I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same in Jesus name. God bless you. I want to talk to you today about how grace is looking for you. She is? Sorry, I couldn't resist. So often we think that God is only interested in the, quote, good people. Now, see, now this is a good start. He's thinking, oh, wow. Okay, Joel Osteen here. Is he going to accidentally preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins and how God forgives sinners? I mean, he used the word grace, right? Now he's not. He, now he's talking about how God isn't just looking for good people. Whoa, we might hear the gospel here. The people that have it all together, people that never make mistakes, never give in to temptation. If your performance is good enough, then you can expect God's goodness. But if you ever get off course, if you ever fail, you ever have doubts, God says, too bad, it's your fault. If you don't want me, I'll leave you alone. I won't bother you. The truth is, it's just the opposite. When you blow it, God doesn't turn away from you. He turns to you. Uh, Okay. That that sounds gospel-ish. What verse is that again? His grace comes looking for you. Now, I agree that this parable of the lost sheep, Jesus does come looking for his lost sheep. Is that the text you're working from here? I'm, I'm kind of struggling to kind of piece this all together. When you have doubts, God doesn't say, what's wrong with you? You need to have more faith. No, God will even pass over people with faith and come to you, the one that has doubts. Uh, okay, that, that, it, that sounds like good news-ish. Where does it say that again in the Bible? Jesus told a parable. About a shepherd that had a hundred sheep. Okay, so, okay, maybe he's going to land on his feet here. I mean, we're, we're crossing our fingers and hoping the best here. But one of them went astray. Right, right. The shepherd left the 99 and went looking for the one. Yeah, he did. This is true. What was that? Grace came looking. Uh, no, Jesus came looking. Okay. But we tend to write people off and think God wouldn't have anything to do with them. Joel, they make fun of me for coming to church. She's living the wrong kind of life. He's out there on drugs. Now, do you realize that over half of the New Testament 
was written by a man that at one time hated believers. Saul was the main enemy of the church. Yeah, again, this is true. Okay, he was an enemy. He was a sinner, yes. He was having believers put in prison. But one day, while he was traveling to Damascus, on his way to persecute more believers, a bright light shined down from heaven, knocked him flat on his back. A voice boomed out, Saul, why do you keep persecuting me? Long story short, Saul became the apostle Paul and wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. What happened? Grace came looking for Saul. Don't ever write anybody off. Your family members... Yeah, yeah Grace came looking for Saul uh, in the sense that Christ found him, blinded him, sent him into Damascus, and then he was baptized for the forgiveness of his sins. That's what the text says. Your friends may be making poor choices. In the natural, you think they're never going to fulfill their destiny. They're in the natural, I feel like they're never going to fulfill their destiny. Yet normally when I think of somebody who is an impenitent sinner, the first thing that comes to my mind is, yeah, that's not good. You go to your grave, an impenitent sinner, it's not that you don't fulfill your destiny. It's that you end up in the lake of fire with the devil. And is, you get what I'm saying there? You're never going to do what's right. You have to remember, grace is looking for them. You well, yes, Jesus comes to seek and save the lost so they can repent and trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. You may write them off, but God doesn't write them off. God knows how to get their attention. If God can change Saul, the greatest enemy of the church, and turn him into the greatest asset of the church, God can touch your loved one. Now, again, this sounds gospelish, but something's really missing here. God can turn your son around. God can change your daughter. And this same man, Paul, wrote in the book of Romans about the grace that God freely gives us. And if anyone understood grace, it would be Paul. And one translation of the word freely that he specifically used is promiscuous, meaning that God's grace will go to anybody. Yes, yes. If someone is promiscuous, they're loose. They're unrestrained. They'll be with anyone. Doesn't matter. That's the way God's grace is. You can be high on drugs and grace is looking for you. Uh, it's it, promiscuous in the sense that he freely forgives sinners. Sinners as awful as me. As terrible as you. You can be working in the wrong kind of place. Grace is looking for you. You can be cheating people, dishonest, no integrity, and God will leave the 99 and come after you. Yes. You can be discouraged, depressed, about to give up on life. The good news is, right now, grace is looking for you. You may have made mistakes. You're not where you want to be in life. Now, again, he's not using the word sin, but he's describing sins. You could easily sit on the sidelines. Let the accusing voices convince you that you're all washed up. Nothing good is in your future. No, right now, grace is coming to you. Uh -huh. God is saying, I'm not mad at you. I'm madly in love with you. I'm not holding. Yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah see, that's... Let's do a little comparative work, okay? Let's compare Joel Osteen's message here... And by the way, that sounds a lot like Rick Warren. Um, and let's take a look at one of the uh, sermons 
preached by the Apostle Peter, okay? Uh, A clear gospel presentation, and let's see what Peter says in this sermon, and just we'll do a little comparative work. So if you have your Bible, flip on over to Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 3, and we're going to look at the um, the sermon that Peter preached after he healed the uh, the lame guy. Okay, uh, the, uh, in fact, let me read let me read the healing. Acts chapter three. I'll start verse one. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is uh, at, that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. He fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were all filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all of the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and the righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ, the appointed Uh, appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things uh, about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Now, do you see the difference? Here, there's repentance, forgiveness of sins, people being turned from their wickedness, and also a promise for those who persist in sin and unbelief, that they shall be cut off and destroyed. So we're getting law and gospel, sin and grace, God's forgiveness as well as the promise of his future wrath. 
All of that is in the message. When we're listening to Joel Osteen, it seems to be, how do I say it, sugar-coated cotton candy uh, that's focusing only in on the positive. Anything against you. I'm not keeping a record of your mistakes. I'm not even interested in your past. I'm interested in your future. Uh Uh-huh. So God's not keeping a record of your mistakes, and he's not interested in your past. He's only interested in your future. What text says that? Friends, it doesn't matter to God where you've been. It matters to God where you're going. Uh Uh-huh. Actually, it does matter to God where you've been. The reason why it matters is because where you've been and what you've done, all of that was put on Christ. God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The call of the gospel is to repent of your sin and your wickedness and to trust Christ for pardon, for mercy, and forgiveness. The call of the gospel is to repent and be forgiven. But along with it comes also another promise. You persist in sin and unbelief, you will be cut off, and you will have all of your sins to reckon for. You don't want to be forgiven. You don't want to be pardoned. And everything that you've done, it'll be yours to pay the punishment for in an eternity in the lake of fire. So here, Joel Osteen sounds like he's preaching something gospel-y, close, but no cigar. The details matter. It's got to be both law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins. You cannot reduce it down just to the positive news and say, oh, God doesn't care about your past. All he cares about is the potential he sees in you for the future. That, my friends, listeners, is a different gospel. Slick sounds gospel-ish. It's closer to the truth, but still not the truth. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button. I have too many Facebook followers already. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Another sermon from Narrate Church in Helena, Montana, uh, from Adam Hushka, about the dangers of surprises. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long time Pirate Christian Radio 
featured advertiser, Cheapo Air, is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember... A portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. We're back. Hour number two, fighting for the faith. <laughs> this sermon is bizarre. Yeah, that's right. We're heading back to Helena, Montana. Narrate Church. This sermon is bizarre. Did I mention that it was bizarre? I mean, flat out strange, weird. Let's do this right, though. Here we go. Good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing <clears throat> service. Today's uh, sermon, <laughs> it's more like pop psychology group counseling session, comes to us via Narrate Church in Helena, Montana, Adam Hushka presiding. The, na- <laughs> the name of this sermon is entitled Surprise! Beware of Surprises! And no joke, no joke, Adam Hushka is going to spend 40 minutes warning us about the dangers of surprises. Now, I know you might find that surprising. That's ironically kind of proving his point. But note how many, no, note, um, well, how do I put this? I don't want to over-exaggerate here, but note how many verses or verse he uses for this sermon. No joke. Yeah, I don't think I can 
set this up anymore. Let me go ahead and kill the music. Without any further ado, here's Adam Hushka warning us about the danger of surprises. Uh-huh. Yeah, here we go. Yeah, that's part of the sermon. This morning's theme is melodramatic. You like it? Uh, okay, so I, I heard this. We are starting this series called uh, Surprise This Morning, and you know we're getting serious when we bring the whiteboard out, right? Actually, not that big a deal. But I did hear a story uh, recently about a, a couple. The husband was going to turn 40, and so his wife decided that in order to celebrate his 40th birthday, she would orchestrate and organize this, this surprise party for him. And so she contacted a bunch of their friends and figured out which ones were available. And, and the, the party that she decided on was that she would make reservations at his favorite restaurant. as kind of an uppity restaurant. And so she made reservations. And the plan was that she would reserve this kind of back table in the back of the restaurant. And all of the friends would get there by 6. And then, you know, they would all be in place. And then at around 6.30, her and her husband would show up. Uh, what she told her husband was that uh, in order to celebrate his birthday, she made reservations at his very favorite restaurant, and knowing that he would just be happy to eat at the restaurant, that was that. Uh, the day of his birthday arrived, uh, she made a phone call at about 6.10 to make sure that all of the friends were there, because every group of friends has that straggler, right? Made sure the straggler had arrived, everything was in order, everything was perfect. Uh, so they left their house, they walked up promptly at 6.30, walked right up to the hostess, and, and his wife said to the hostess, uh, we have a reservation for Smith. And the hostess uh, looked at them in all of her innocence and said, oh, you must be with the surprise party in the back of the restaurant. <laughs> he, he, he said he instantly picked up on the tension of the moment could pick up on how angry his wife was, and he just instinctively dismissed himself to the bathroom. He just, like, just conflict avoidant. Just, he was gone. He actually said that he also knew that his wife was a black belt in karate, and later when the officer asked him, uh, did you watch your wife tear the spine out of that young woman? He wanted to be able to honestly answer, no. And yet, in many ways, I think that captures what I want us to wrestle with over the course of this series that will take us through the summer, and that, that is the, the ironic, uh, almost sinister nature of surprises, the, the problems that surprises create for us, the angst that they create for us. And so really this morning, uh, really this morning the, the goal is one thing, and that is to, to begin to get you to wrestle with just how dangerous surprises are in your life how many problems they create for you. And then uh, if I can do that to begin to convince you that, that perhaps uh, becoming aware of surprises and knowing a surprise when you see one would be advantageous for you and your spouse and everybody who lives in your circle. All of this became uh, apparent to me, or at least my awareness was uh, awakened this last Christmas. And so to kind of get there, I've got to go back a year from that because on, in December of 2011, as Teresa and I were coming home from my dad's house, uh, after Christmas, we, we were driving home and we just, you know, I, I don't know if you do this, but when like that summer vacation's over, you start talking about like, what are we going to do next summer? What are we going to do next Christmas? And, and we just started talking about how we knew some people who over Christmas, like they don't go sit around in a living room and just do nothing. Like they go to a cabin or they ski or they recreate or something like that. And we thought, man, that would be really fun to, to rent a cabin and, and convince someone in our family, like let's rent a cabin and let's ski and stuff and not spend all that money on gifts. And so we started to talk about that. And, and my family's too big and there's too many dynamics and there's too many, uh, there's too many steps, this and steps that. And I mean, it's all great, but it's just, it would be too complicated to pull that off. And, 
And so we thought, well, her family would be a perfect candidate for that, which makes us sound more self-absorbed than I think that we are. It wasn't really like, how could we get you to cooperate with our dream Christmas? But certainly the way it sounds when I say it like that, isn't it? Anyway, her sister, uh, who lives in Tacoma, and her brother-in-law, who's a former army ranger, they're pretty active in that way, and they do this sort of thing. And her dad always goes to her sisters for Christmas, and so we thought, well, maybe we could get them to do this. Now, I I was thinking something halfway, something along those lines. And so they began planning, and around this time last year... Why does the church need to hear this personal life story of Adam Hushka? I have no idea what this has to do with the Bible, Christian sanctification, sound doctrine, what the scripture says. Yeah. What they landed on was Leavenworth, Washington, which is, which is fantastic. You may be familiar with it. It's this Bavarian kind of quaint town that they do lots of fun things on Christmas. Though it's not exactly halfway, like they live in Tacoma. So it's kind of like driving to Missoula for them and kind of like driving to Seattle for me. So... We worked through that, and, you know, this, the cynical stuff that comes with a moment like that. It took me six months, but I worked through that. <laughs> then December 26th arrived. That was the day we were set to leave. And as we were pulling out, and I don't know if you remember, on the 26th, we, we kind of got hit with a little bit of a storm. And um, if you know me, you know that I, I spent all day, December 18th through the 25th, watching the weather forecast and knowing that a storm would be hitting. And sure, sure enough, a storm was hitting. And as we were just leaving town, I don't even think we were at McDonald Pass. I don't even think we were, I think we were barely out of the driveway. She said, oh yeah, I got this email from my sister that said uh, there was a big storm in Leavenworth and we might not be able to get to the cabin. And I thought, well, that would have been great to know like yesterday, <laughs> but, but it's Christmas, right? And got my A game on. I said, okay, whatever, like, well, I guess we'll just keep plowing ahead. And so plow ahead we did. And we pulled into Missoula, that little gas station. Was it 93? As you go to Kalispell, we pulled into that gas station. I think it was still dark even when we got there. I mean, we're, we're you know, like, we're, we're going. This is serious. And by then, we, we, she's had, she had an email, and she said, well, it sounds like the storm was pretty severe, and they haven't had power for five days. And, and, and there's a lot of downed trees, and she's talked to the cabin owner now, and uh, she's, just, she's not sure that the trees have been cleared or the power has been restored. This just confirms everything about uh, what we all think of our in-laws, right? And they're great people. It's just I'm not a good person. And <laughs> so I said to myself, because I had just read this book by Les Parrott called something like You're a Control Freak. <laughs> and, and one of his coping mechanisms was just accept worst case scenario. Like once that, this just convince yourself, like go to worst case scenario and then work back. And so I, uh, because I've got my A-game on, I'm rested. I said to myself, I didn't even say it out loud, uh, but what I said to myself is, uh, Adam, you're driving to Tacoma today. Like, I'm thinking, worst case scenario is the cabin's closed. We go cram ourselves into their little tiny house, and I rub elbows with my in-laws, who are great people. I'm just not, uh, for extended periods of time. And we're not in this big, luxurious cabin outside of Leavenworth, you know, having fun and playing in the snow and having our space. We're in this little house. Like, that is worst case. And so I just told myself that. Well, then as we got, I think it was in the Coeur d'Alene area, it was, had become clear, like, it, it ain't happening. This is it's not happening. And so I said to Teresa, well, we can just drive to Tacoma. And she looked at you, looked at me, and said, uh, "Where's my husband?" <laughs> that that was not typical for me. But but do you go to church to hear the pastor tell stories about his life, or to hear him preach and proclaim what Scripture says? But like I'm, I'm doing this game in my head. Like worst case, we're driving to Tacoma, so okay, I can keep my attitude in check. And then we stopped. I don't know somewhere in the Moses Lake region or something for lunch, and that was horrible, and the food wasn't good. And then I was looking at the weather report for Snoqualmish Pass, and 
I don't know if you've ever driven Snoqualmish Pass, but it is the world's worst pass. I, as a kid, we drove to Seattle on Christmas Day one, one year, and we spent eight hours on Snoqualmish Pass. So I kind of have Tourette's when it comes to Snoqualmish Pass. <laughs> and, and then, so her sister's like, great, just drive to Tacoma. That, that'll work great. And so, sweet, I've got it. Like, we're locked in. I know what to expect. I'm gonna, I've been to her house before. I've done this before. We'll all sit around and drink coffee until 11 o'clock in the morning because we sleep in until 10. I mean, it'll just be one of those deals. I'm fine with it. And then her sister called. We were almost to the intersection where we would pass Leavenworth. And she said, oh, we got a great idea. You guys drive here to Tacoma today. And then tomorrow we found this lodge a couple hours further west. So tomorrow we'll, we'll drive to that lodge just a couple hours further west. And then when we're done, we'll all go home from there. I didn't like that idea. Uh, like I was already a little bent out of shape for the last 12 months over the fact that we were not driving halfway. We were driving 600 plus miles. And then I'm thinking, so now when we turn to come home, like now we're two hours further and I'm going to a place that I've never been. And, 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 and there may have been some generalizations about the in-laws made at that point and some justifications for what I was feeling at that point that resulted in our taking the exit and pulling under the, you know, the, under the underpass thing. And, and because we had to go back to the drawing board, I just made a suggestion that we maybe reconsider the plans. And 10 minutes later, we decided that we would go to a motel that was as close to Leavenworth as we could get. And we could spend the week there. Now, I don't know if you have little kids. Many of you do. Many of you have had little kids. But in my mind, there's, there's nothing that I... There, well, that would be an exaggeration. There's very things I enjoy less than a two-bed motel room with me and my three little boys. It's horrible. Like, I would rather be in a tent. I would rather be outside. I'd rather be anywhere. Like, I don't plan on visiting hell, but I think it might be something like it. <laughs> because... You spend exorbitant amounts of money to be miserable continuously. And, and, and that's what we did. And then every once in a while, we would be ramrodded through town, you know, because now we're in this group of 11 and we're in this tourist town. And suffice it to say, I was miserable and a jerk the entire time. I mean, it, it was not good. And we can laugh now, but it, it was not good. Uh, and when I got home, I know some of you have this discipline. And the, the next day, uh, it was kind of that okay, I'm going to go read my Bible and spend some time with the Lord in the morning in one of those deals. And, and do you ever have those moments where the, where the Lord's like, eh, no, we, we can't just talk. You got some stuff to deal with. Uh, the ancients call it confession and repentance, right? And, and, and that was the process that began for me. And, and you know when you're there and you feel incredibly embarrassed and ashamed and you're grateful for the, that you have family members because if they weren't family, they'd never talk to you again. And like all of that emotion. And so in the midst of that emotion, I just started writing because uh, I was sickened by myself. You know, you know what I mean? Like just way too aware of my own brokenness. And, and I w- had a, a moleskin with me. And I just started writing the words that I, could, that I, that I know uh, destroy me and those around me. And so I wrote uh, anxiety. And I, I don't even really understand why I was doing this. I don't normally do this. But I wrote anxiety. I wrote anger. There were five of them. I wrote controlling. Someone screamed that out last service before I could even. What is this? Is this Adam Hushka, you know, basically using the folks in, at their narrate church to, you know, unpack his heart and let them be his therapist? No, so far the Bible has not shown up yet. I'm not sure what this has to do with anything in Scripture because having read the Scripture you know, more than once, um, I don't ever recall in the times that I've read through the Bible those big warnings about surprises. So, yeah, can't wait to see where this goes. But already it's like 
I feel like I don't even need to critique much. Just playing it is its own critique. Weird, huh? Get it, but the... <laughs> don't know what that means, Joe. Um, uh, what? What? Do anybody else like to weigh in? Because I'm. I have five. And would you like to guess what my issues are? Anger. Oh yeah, in, impatience. False doctrine. It's it's a life giving thing to be around me. I assure you. Um, and, a false gospel and uh, inflexible, which has nothing to do with my inability to pass the presidential fitness test. When I, inability to rightly handle God's word. Are you putting these on the list? I was like, I, I don't like. I don't have these moments with the Lord very often uh, in terms of like where I just have this like boom. God is talking to me, and I don't mean like audible voice. I mean. Either the Holy Spirit's in me or I'm crazy and I'm banking on, uh, on, on the first one. And, but I just felt like God pointed out to me, like, Adam, all of those issues really emanate from one single issue. Like, all- you mean sin? The, your, your fallen, corrupt, sinful nature? Is that what you're talking about? Please tell me that's what you're talking about. All of that stuff flows from, from one place. And... And, and, and the issue, I suppose, from a more clinical standpoint, dealt with adaptability. And what I felt like the Lord started to point out to me was, Adam, you are at your worst when you're surprised. You're at your worst when the unexpected happens. So you feel that God directly told you this, that you are at your worst when you are surprised. Therefore, you were compelled to share this supposed word from God with everybody in your church as if it's actually a real word from God that we can find in our Bible. Right. Got it. Mm-hmm. Theology via personal experience. When you know it, you, you do fine. But when plans change, no matter how trivial or severe, like that's, that's your most regrettable moments. And I guess I heard someone say a long time ago that and if you're in a position like I'm in, as long as you keep paying attention and working on your own brokenness, you'll never run out of things to say. That's very much where this series is coming from. Because I guess I want to share some of the observations that I made and some of the challenges that I have and, and begin to get you to think about, like, have you considered just how dangerous surprises are? And kind of the pun with the beware of dog. Like, are, are, are you... A- how dangerous surprises are. Yeah. Do you ever have those... Times in your life where, you know, a surprise is creeping up on you. Ready to spring itself upon you. And then surprise you. It's dangerous out there. There's surprises that could totally destroy you. Run for the hills! Jesus died to save us from surprises! This is ridiculous. Are, are you aware of, uh, of the need to beware of surprises? I mean, just stop and consider uh, how emotionally exhausting they are. Yeah, kind of like this sermon. Yeah, it, this sermon's truly emotionally exhausting. I, I'm hearing people as I'm... You know, broadcasting this uh, this episode of Fighting for the Faith, I hear them pounding their heads against their desks saying, this is not a... No, this didn't really happen. This is a joke, right? The, the Chris is trying to... Uh, what's the term they use today? Punk us. Yeah, he's Chris Roseborough just punked everybody by trying to make us believe that this is actually a sermon, but it was never a... It really is a sermon. Yeah, mm-hmm.
the anxiety, the anger, the depression. And that's not to say there aren't clinical forms of that as well, but, but seriously, like the, the frustrations, the loneliness, the disappointments, everything from missing a flight on an airline to having to sleep in a motel room when you were going to stay in a cabin to a medical diagnosis to a divorce. Like, are, are you aware of just how dangerous surprises are to your emotional well-being? Not to mention financial. I mean, just stop and think about how expensive surprises are. That, 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 that's why we have an insurance industry. Because we stand on the shoulders of people who have gone before us, and what they've told us is, hey, financial surprises are expensive. Your house burns down, that's a big deal. So you kind of got to plan for the unexpected, which is in some ways an oxymoron. It's why we have house insurance, it's why we have fire insurance and flood insurance and car insurance. And when we have teenagers, we have really good car insurance. It's, it's, it's why we have medical insurance so that we have something that we can't actually use. I mean, we, it's, it's why we have all of these things. It's to prepare ourselves for surprises. Or think of what they do to relationships. A single surprise can undo decades. A single surprise can undo a wealth of credibility. I wouldn't need to do a dozen things or a hundred things or a thousand things to completely compromise any credibility I have in your eyes. I would only need to surprise you with one thing. Months years of energy invested into a relationship, a single surprise can derail it and completely sabotage it. Think about work. Uh, I'm a Bronco fan and and living in the the shame that two of our most high-ranking executives got DUIs this week. And I I don't have any uh, moral judgment or I don't have like any, I don't want to be too harsh, but I think, man, in most fields, you get one of those puppies and and your job is gone. I mean, it's just, it's, think, think, of, think of how a single surprise can completely ruin an entire career. Think, think of the anxiety that comes with you can be working on a project, whether it's a painting or a song or a business, and you can pour your life into it for days and weeks and months and decades, and a single unexpected occurrence over. Now, Some of you are thinking like, yeah, 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 but this is a generalization because sometimes I like surprises. And and I think that's true. I think it's more true of some of you than others. We're going to talk about some of the science of that in just a little bit. But I think if we're honest, generally speaking, if if you're someone that's like, I'm spontaneous, I like surprises, there's a couple things in order. One is you already have some of the emotional skills uh, and the Holy Spirit's already kind of helped you with some things that I think that we're trying to learn in this series. So So if, I mean, you're to the point where you really like surprises and the Holy Spirit has helped you overcome the danger that that lie at the heart of surprises this pro, this sermon may not be for you again what text is he he's not this isn't from a biblical text some of you are just perhaps because of your family because someone else was good at this in your life previously like you're already really good at this the other option is uh you're, you're just not aware of like the surprises that you like are the ones that go your way and and that's different it's it's ironic like it's one thing to really enjoy an upset in a sporting event. Like, and we like those, especially when it's our team, right? When our team unexpectedly wins, those are awesome. But when they unexpectedly lose, it's miserable. Or, or, or when, when, our, when our rival team unexpectedly loses, that is the best. Sometimes better than our team winning, especially if they're the Raiders. But when they unexpectedly win, it's miserable. Uh, um, unexpected benefits, 
Yeah, I hate to be surprised when, you know, that opposing baseball team beats the Dodgers, and I totally expected the Dodgers to win. Oh, it just sends me for a loop. I, in fact, I have to spend at least an hour in therapy every time that happens. We love that. No, no, nobody sues over that. We, we love uh, unintended perks, unexpected perks. But what on earth makes this a sermon? This, this is ridiculous. But, but unexpected costs? Oh, boy. Like we've got a whole industry designed to protect us from those. If you're at a restaurant, if you're surprised by how good the service is, well, you love that. But if you're surprised by how bad it is? Yeah, I'm surprised by how bad this sermon about the danger of surprises is. Weird. It's, kind of, it's like the surprise loop. You know, like when you look, you hold two mirrors next to each other, you know, facing each other, and it just creates this, this infinite loop thing going on here. Yeah, it's bizarre, you know? Like, you feel like, well, you don't get a tip, right? I mean, so, so yeah, th- th- there's a sense in which there are some surprises we like, but, but I think that, that, that we're a little jaded or we're a little um, un- dishonest with ourselves about which ones they are. Even in the way we enunciate things, like, th- th- there's the, like, no way. Right? We, no way, which is a negative response to a surprise. And then there's the, no way, right? The, the completely positive response. So, how you doing with surprises? I guess that's the meddling that I want to do in this series. And this morning, again, I really just want to ask the, these two questions. Um, are you aware of how dangerous they are? I had no idea. I mean... Before I heard this sermon, I was completely oblivious to the the dangers that lie within surprises. I, I'd never heard this teaching anywhere, especially in the Bible. And secondarily, do you know one when you see one? Yeah, I can generally spot surprises. I'm yeah, I'm I know when they show up. Yeah, I, I've, I'm pretty familiar with them. And can say, ah, okay, yeah, there, that, that's a surprise. Yep, that, yep, I'm pretty good at spotting those. Like, do you, do you know a surprise when you see one? Like, isn't this, these are the moments, aren't they, when, when we find ourselves going, oh man, everything was going good, and then. Everything was going so good, and then. Yeah, kind of like, you know, everything was going great in the church when pastors were opening up their Bibles, people were bringing their Bibles to church, and he would say things like, you know, uh, we're, oh, please open to the book of Ephesians chapter 2, we will be looking at chapters 2, 3, and 4 today, uh, let's begin and then start reading and then, you know, teach the text, you know, stuff like that. Or today we'll be, we'll be working through the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapters 7 and 8, um, and, you know, so... Hunker down, get your notepads out, let's go. And then, you know, he'd start preaching and read. And then, the, you know, and then, you know, things would happen like, you know, he'd preach Christ from every text of scripture. And people afterwards, they would come away with a, a profound and deeper understanding and appreciation of God's word, uh, the miraculous nature of it, the convicting nature of it, and showing us our sin. And also the sheer comfort that comes from preaching Christ and him crucified for our sins. Even to Christians, yes, Christians need to hear. Uh, the message of the gospel weekly. And the reason why is because, well, they just spent the entire week having uh, to battle their own sinful flesh, the temptations of the devil, uh, the temptations of the world. And, and, you know, and a lot of Christians, in fact, the vast majority of them on a week-to-week basis, they struggle with that that warfare and uh, at times even suffer major defeats. And so they need to come back to church and hear about what Jesus has done for them and that his cross even saves Christians. Oh, yeah, see, everything was great 
And then surprise. Ta-da! Surprise happened, and then the purpose-driven movement came, and uh, now we got all these seeker-driven churches and pastors who, surprise, don't ha- preach the Bible anymore. Yeah, that, there's some danger in that kind of surprise, for sure. And that statement could be applied to, to a job, to a marriage, to a vacation, to a travel plan in an airport. It could apply to any different number of different things. Uh, but, but ultimately what we're doing then is, is, is we're, we're noting that something unexpected happened and that's where things went wrong. And isn't that why we find ourselves going, wanting to go back and turn back the clock and go, man, if I could just go back to the moment or even more so. Yeah, see, generally when I have those times in my life, when I want to be able to go back to the moment, uh, what we're generally talking about in my life is, well, a sin that I've committed or some t- pl- some way in which I've utterly, really missed the mark, blown it. And, of course, you know what? Yeah, we can't hop in our DeLoreans or our TARDISes and head back in time and undo what was done. So what do you do? Oh, I know. You confess your sin because 2,000 years ago Christ died for all of them. Hmm? Yeah. Y- you get what I'm saying there? So I don't know what this sermon's about, but, you know, I'll see if I can, you know, try to at least preach some kind of counter sermon in the middle of this non-sermon sermon. If I could go back to the moment before the moment, whether that's like I'd leave at 9, not 9.05, because I know what happens at that intersection at 9.05, or, or I'd say yes, not no, because I know, where, I know where that led, or I wouldn't take that job, or I would take that job, or, or I would go get that degree, or I wouldn't. Like if we could go back before, like the reason we lay in bed at night and think like even in the most dramatic, dramatic of situations, like, oh, I just wish it was all a bad dream. It's surprise that's the problem, right? Um, No. If we could just eliminate surprise, we could eliminate many of our problems. Uh, <laughs> really? I thought our problem uh, that you know Christian pastors are supposed to be addressing is our corrupted, fallen, sinful nature, and that's the reason why things go screwy in our lives. You know why we suffer death, diseases, surprises that are unwanted. You know stuff like that. That's all a result of consequences of sin. Sin. So, um, yeah, eliminating surprises isn't really going to go too far towards solving the sin problem. And so I guess part of my case here is even if you're someone that's like, no, no, Adam, I'm spontaneous. I don't have a schedule. I just like to do those things. And, well, I could argue that that's controlling in its own right. But, but more so, more so, I'll bet you, no matter how spontaneous you are, some of your most embarrassing moments, some of your most regretful moments, some of the moments where you caused the most pain or the most damage or or made decisions that are so hard to undo, they were were responses to a surprise. And and whether you believe... And if only you had been sheltered from the surprise, then you wouldn't have had that terrible moment. By the way, I should note the fact here, a couple of days ago, we were keeping track of of the verses-to-minute ratio in a sermon. Uh, Keep this in mind. We are 19 minutes into this um, sermon, and so far there hasn't been a single appearance of God's Word. Not, I mean, God's Word hasn't been mentioned in the footnotes of this sermon. Not even a vague allusion to the written Word of God. We've got nothing so far regarding the Bible here, and yet the job of a pastor, by the way, According to Scripture, is to preach the word. Let me let me tell you what Scripture tells pastors to do, so you don't think I'm just being a meanie or a gunky head. Yeah, that's sometimes people call me, you know, bad names. You know, they say I'm a hater and stuff like that. And 
course, you know, that just goes along with the job. But, you know, I didn't make this up, okay? One day, not too long ago, <laughs> back actually a long time ago when I was really young and skinny, I read this passage of Scripture for the first time. And you know what I thought when I read this passage for the first time? I thought, oh, well, that's the job of what a pastor is supposed to be doing. It's right there in Scripture. God actually tells his pastors what they're supposed to do. Oh, that's great. That The way there's no confusion. I was a little bit naive at the time, but let, let, let me read to you what uh, uh, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to Pastor Timothy. And this is found in 2 Timothy, which is one of the pastoral epistles. Okay, The reason why it's called a pastoral epistle is because it's, there's stuff in there that directly relates to what pastors ought to be doing what makes somebody qualified to be a pastor? What makes them not qualified to be a pastor? What they're supposed to do as a pastor? What they're not supposed to do is, you get what I'm saying? There's some pretty interesting good guidelines and job descriptions written in the pastoral epistles. So, Second <clears throat> Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. I read, But as for you, young Pastor Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For all Scripture is breathed out, or God-breathed, breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So so here's the deal. Jo, jo, scripture, scripture equips Christians for every good work. But if they're only getting you one or two or three out of context verses every Sunday, how are they being equipped for every good work if they're not actually being saturated and soaked in the full counsel of the word of God? Hmm? I mean, it's a fair question, right? <clears throat> so, 2 Timothy chapter 4 then continues. So, I charge you, as the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. In season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work in evangelists, fulfill your ministry. Plain and simple. There you go. So, now, it it seems kind of straightforward, right? Job of pastors to preach the word, to equip the saints for every good work. And in order to equip the saints, all of them for every good work, well, that means you got to preach the entire counsel of the word of God, right? Right. Okay. So, I mean, in a sermon like this, okay, now I'm going to kind of, um, spoiler alert is probably the way I put it. This is a spoiler alert. When I reviewed this sermon earlier, I counted, no joke, one actually 1.6 maybe 6.6 verses for this entire sermon no joke he quotes one whole verse and like two-thirds of a second verse but actually doesn't complete the whole second verse so it's not quite two verses but just a little bit more than one so the question is 
after this sermon, how far behind is Adam Hushka in in actually fulfilling the duty of his ministry to preach the word? How far behind is he after wasting an entire week rather than preaching and teaching the word of God? He spent only, you know, the literally the entire Sunday focused in on one verse. Now, it's not to say that you can't go deep on one verse, you know, that a pastor's sinning when he does so. Okay, he's not. Okay, but understand that the job of the pastor is to preach the word, the full counsel, the whole counsel of the word of God. So you don't want to put too many Sundays in a row where you're only preaching through one verse. Otherwise, you're kind of falling behind in your duty. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, you remember back in the day when you were in high school and. And you know, I know some of you listeners are fighting for the faith are in high school, so th- you don't have to actually think too far back in your memory. This is actually, a, you know, consider that to be just a bonus to listening to fighting for the faith at this time in your life. But to back in the day when I was in high school, okay, I, the, the way I thought about homework was kind of like this: over the course of the next quarter, I'm going to have this amount of homework, and. If I fall behind in my homework, I'll never be able to catch up, so i got to stay on top of it. Because if I miss one assignment or two assignments, then I'm behind, okay? And, that, and that's the right way of putting it. I'm behind, okay? Well, every Sunday, your pastor's not doing his job and really digging in and preaching God's Word in depth, covering large swaths of Scripture. He's falling behind in his duties, right? I, I think that's a fair way to put it. We continue. The, the, the Bible is from God or not, like that, that's stuff you've got to work through. But I, I think where you can have some help with that is the credibility with which God addresses this very tension. Because what The credibility with which God addresses this tension. The tension regarding surprises? Maybe news to you certainly wasn't news to, to the people, isn't news to the people in the scriptures. And thus, if you believe that the Bible is inspired and given to us by God, like I believe and some of you believe, that means. Yeah, I, Adam, listen, it's, it's great that you think that the Bible's inspired by God and stuff like that. But that's not going to help anybody here. Okay, if you believe it's inspired, but you don't actually preach it and do your job, who cares if you think it's inspired or not? You're acting like somebody who doesn't think it's inspired. Because if you really believe it's inspired, and it's really important, inspired means it's that God himself, God the Holy Spirit, has revealed what's in Scripture, inspired the authors to write the things that they wrote. If you really believe that, and it's that important that this is a revelation from the one true God that equips the saints for every good work, then you're going to spend an inordinate amount of time digging into it, mastering the text, making sure that you're rightly handling it, helping the people in your congregation to rightly understand what the scriptures say, rather than doing this group therapy thing. It means it's not news to God. It's, it's indicative of just how well he knows us and our condition. In fact, there's a place where, where Jesus' half-brother, uh, he, he did some writing. Now, this is the setup for the verse we're going to get. And, and he addresses this very tension in James chapter 4. Now, it may be helpful. James, J- James, if you've never read the Bible, might be one of the most accessible, easy-to-read books in the whole Bible. Some people call it the, uh, the two-by-four of the Bible because he's just so blunt and so straightforward and the application is so there. But contextually, what you need to know to really appreciate what's going to go on here, I think, is the James... Okay, now, okay, we're going to stop here. We're going to apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis, Okay. James chapter 4. Now, I happen to know, because I've previewed the sermon, which verse we're going to get from Adam Hushka here. Okay? That being the case, we're going to apply our three rules for sound biblical hermeneutics. And I'm not going to tell you which verse it is. I'm not going to tell you which verse it is. But as I'm reading, see if you can find the, the 
train of thought, if you would, the, the, the doctrine regarding the danger of surprises and how James teaches us to overcome that danger and how he addresses the danger of surprises. Okay, here's the text. I'll start at James chapter 3, verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and self-ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, and you do not have, so you murder. You covet, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. You ask, and you do not receive, because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your own passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world and makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace, therefore, it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Okay? So, in there, in all of that that I've read, is the verse that we're going to hear from Adam Hushka. Having read it in context, did you note any time there that James was warning us about the danger of surprises? Nope, I didn't see it. I, I, did you hear it? I didn't hear it. It's not there. So when I read this passage in context, it's non-existent as far as a biblical teaching regarding the danger of surprises. Um, yeah, and this is the only passage that we will be getting in this sermon. James was Jesus' half-brother, which is because Joseph wasn't his dad, right? Like His parents were Mary and God, and then when most Mary and Joseph had more kids, those became his half-siblings. And so, so James, as would be the case with most family dynamics, he wasn't all that impressed by Jesus, He wasn't a follower of Jesus. He wasn't one of the 12. He wasn't one of the 144. He wasn't uh, among the the crowds that we know of until the resurrection. And to me, that gives me confidence that the resurrection is a historical event because... I'm glad that you're confident that the resurrection is a historical event. Um, You would would be wise then to maybe spend some time actually preaching it. You know, preaching the text from Scripture that talks about Jesus' resurrection and helping the folks there at Narrate Church understand what God's Word really says. I mean, what's the point in believing that Jesus bodily rose from the dead if you're not going to do what uh, he says and preach the Word? Like, I've got family members and I've got a sister and, and, like, I can appreciate not being impressed by them. And then all of a sudden, like, James seems to have just been blown away by the resurrection and went, oh, wow, jeez, yeah, I guess he's God. Because of that, James became a leader in the early church. 
And, and really where he led was within, within the Jewish community uh, in and near Jerusalem. And, and the context of what he's writing here uh, is he's writing to a group of people who were Christ followers at a time when it wasn't popular to be a Christ follower. And particularly they were Christ followers within the Israel, within the Jewish controlled areas. And so to be a Jewish person, they wouldn't have called themselves Christian. They would have called themselves Jews who believed Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the, the promised one sent from God. To, to be one of the... Well, they called themselves followers of the way. Uh, was social suicide. It was political suicide. It resulted in their being persecuted very, very heavily. Not only that, we, we know that, that for whatever reason, these people he's writing to were very economically suppressed and there were some wealthy people taking advantage of them. Now, that's not a generalization of wealth whatsoever, but that's the dynamic here. And if you read the letter, you see that there's this incredible frustration. If you read the letter, why don't you read it to him? Uh, do uh, do uh, ha- I mean? Let me ask it this way: Are you busy this Sunday afternoon? I mean, or Sunday morning? Have you got more important things that you should be doing? I mean, do you have a dental appointment after church? Um, you know, maybe uh, you got a football game that you got to get to, or maybe some sporting event for one of your sons. I mean. Yeah, I, I understand that you, know, you got all these pressures put on you nowadays, and you know, and but of course they do have these things called DVRs and stuff. So if you, if television is getting in the way here, I mean, Adam, the the sermon that you preached is forty minutes long. Forty. Do you think that any time during the forty minutes that you're delivering the sermon that you could have actually opened up? the biblical text, and read large portions of it and preached on it. You understand what I'm saying? I'm just questioning where your priorities are. Towards the way they're being taken advantage of. Now, my point in all that is this. They had a really good argument for why they had the right to be frustrated. Um, And yet, when you read James, you'll never see that argument showing up as to why they were frustrated. And yet James just calls him on it. Watch this in in chapter 4. He says, uh, what causes fights and quarrels among you? See, he knows they're all up in arms. There's all kinds of conflict. There's all kinds of problems going on. He he knows there's interpersonal conflict, which is the conflict we have between uh, ourselves and another. And there's intrapersonal conflict, the conflict we have emotionally in psychology. He knows they're all bent out of shape. They don't like staying in motels. Things aren't going well. And they're just mad. And they don't know why they're mad, but they're just mad. He knows that. They don't like staying in motels? Yeah, that's not a historical anachronism at all, is it? And he says, what causes that? Yeah, again, when you read it in context, that's not what he's doing, and I read it in context. Now, of course, it's rhetorical. And then he says, uh, and, and here's what I think would have felt like a knife in their back because he was with them, he was on their team, and yet he just comes right after him. He says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Not, like, don't they come because they're jerks, because they're treating you unjustly, because they don't believe in Jesus? Now, let me see if I have this straight. Two days ago, we d- reviewed that Happily Ever After sermon by Eric Lawson, which was one of the most obnoxious sermons I've ever heard. Um, and in that sermon, he actually used this exact same verse. And you know what he said about it? He said, oh, this was a verse that was given to us by God to help us live happily ever after. It gave us a principle to apply so that we can have happy marriages. Now, Adam Hushka comes along. Apparently, he didn't compare notes with Eric Lawson, another seeker-driven church planter. And um, Adam Hushka comes along, and he says, oh, well, this is all about, James 4.1 is all about the danger of surprises and how it causes bad things and, you know, 
distortions and noise in your life. This passage is about neither of those things. And you do uh, because you're a Christian and the world hates them. None of that. No, he says, you want to know why there's so much conflict? It's because you have desires. And they're not being met. My kids came home from elementary school with this little jingle. uh, You get what you get and you don't throw a fit. That's the issue, he says. Like, you want something, you're not getting it, and so you're mad. You're upset. Yeah, you know, like, because what I want from my pastors uh, is that they do what God's Word says to do and preach the Word. And so, you know, when they don't do that, I get upset. It makes me mad. You know, in fact, it surprises me and causes me to go sideways. Oh, no, the danger of surprises. You're freaking out. Surprise. It's the unexpected. Like unexpected things happen and you don't like it and thus everything else is in turmoil. He continues, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. Does that not describe most of your arguments with your spouse? Most of the frustrations you have with your boss? Does it not describe what makes you so angry when someone pulls out in front of you? Yeah, uh, can I read? By the way, he did creep into a little bit of uh, verse two, but he hasn't read the whole thing yet. You desire and you do not have... So you murder. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I Listen, I haven't actually killed anybody, at least physically. You, you get what I'm saying here? You or when the checker at the till is too slow. You wanted something. You didn't even necessarily know you wanted it. And now you're not getting it and you're torqued. And James goes, you want to deal with your anger. You're not going to fix them. But we can work on you. We can address that. You covet but you do not get what you want. You know what coveting is, of course. It's, it's wanting something that someone else has. You want something, and you're not getting it, and now you're mad. Now, listen, I understand that some of you, uh, the, the conflict you're feeling, it's not trivial. Like, like someone died. Some, someone left you. You got a bad medical di- Okay, just, just to, you know, to make sure we got the score here right. That's one point, I would say like 1.6 verses, okay? We got one full verse and like two-thirds, so 1.66 verses in this sermon. Yeah, not even two, 1.66. We continue. Diagnosis. Like some of us, yeah, yeah, we're being petty because we don't like motels. But some of you, it's the real deal. And I think what James is saying is, listen, there's still only one solution to what you're feeling, and it lies with you. Uh, yeah, uh, James <laughs> uh, isn't addressing the problem of you know surprises and things like that. And I read the passage in context. Let me continue. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. You spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he might make that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So the solution there is repentance. Uh Uh-huh. 
and to be forgiven by God's grace, resisting the devil and stuff like that. You're not going to get to that, are you? You want something, you're surprised by something, something unexpected has happened, and it's kicking your butt. That's what's happening. Let me ask you, how how do you do with surprises? Now, we know medically, uh, we know biologically, that some of us do better than others. There, there's this book, and, and we, we snagged some. A lot of them went for service, but it, it's... Yeah, we're done with the Bible now, folks. 1.66 verses. Less than two. 1.66. It's uh, written by a woman named Susan Cain. It's a book that I bumped into in the same season where I was coming to the realization that my own issues with the unexpected were my issue. and, and, and So now we're on talking about this book and these unexpected issues and things like that that you were having. And who wrote this book? Was it God the Holy Spirit? Was this inspired by God? And what she studies in this book, what she does is she takes a bunch of psychological studies and lots of science out of places like Stanford and these highly credible scientific institutions, medical institutions. And she asks the question, what makes an introvert an introvert and what makes an extrovert an extrovert? She, she frankly has a chip on her shoulder because she's bothered by the fact that she feels like our culture unfairly caters to the extrovert. One of the studies that, that she spends a lot of time on, and I, for me was really, really helpful, involves a study that a psychologist out of Stanford did. It was a longitudinal study, which uh, makes me feel smart saying the word, but I didn't know what it meant before I studied it either. It, it just means that she followed these people for a really long time, decades. She started with them when they were six, or excuse me, when they were six months. And she, they, they took, he, he took these babies, and he would initially, as they were six months old, he would expose them to surprises. Uh, the sound of a balloon being popped, a smell they'd never smelled before. Um, I, there was some kind of physical sensation. I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but, but he surprised these babies. Now notice, because he's not reading the rest of the passage from James, we haven't got to the part about repenting, resisting the devil, or anything like that. Mm-hmm which would be the solution, the application that uh, James gave in that passage. We're not getting that application because Adam Hushka's got way more important things to preach about than what God's Word says. And what he noted was that, of course, the way they responded could be mapped on a continuum, that, that at one extreme end of that were these kids who like, not only weren't phased by it, but almost seemed to like it. I mean, they, they, a balloon pops by their head and, and they just kind of smile like a six-month-old can smile. And then at the other extreme, that, that was, if I remember correctly, was roughly 20% of the babies. At the other extreme were this other 20%. And they, as, as positive or unaffected as their response was, this one was negative. Screamed, were, were really, really upset. Some of you are going, that's my kid. The, the, but it was really, really upset by it. And then, of course, there's the in-between people. What they began to hypothesize, and the reason they conducted the longitudinal study, was this idea that what makes an extrovert an extrovert and an introvert an introvert doesn't have to do so much with people and sociability and things like that. It has to do with stimulation. In fact, uh, really one of the big takeaways from the book is that an extrovert, but by their very nature, literally, can handle high doses of stimulation. They, they like all kinds of sounds and noises and, and commands and demands, and they, they can take it. And an introvert, by their very nature, literally, can't take all the stimulation, which means like one new experience can emotionally wear them out because they're so stimulated by it. That, that having a conversation with one person is about all they can handle. See, where that helps me, and I guess where I'm bringing this to the table, is to provide some balance to this whole surprise idea. Because, yeah, I think some of you, uh, I think some of you can handle more than others. 
This has helped me a lot to go, okay, so Adam, what you're experiencing right now, you're you're not going to die, and they're not evil, and it's not the end of the world. It's just new. It's unexpected. And you don't like that. In fact, part of what she talks about is that, um, and this is kind of counterintuitive, but statistics hold it up, that that most uh, teachers, most professors, most writers, most artists, even most uh, like level five CEOs and leaders of, of large organizations, most of them, they're actually introverts. And the reason that those people gravitate to those positions isn't because they're control freaks necessarily. It's because they have this, this biological need to be in control of their environment, to know what's coming at them. And as a leader and an author and a teacher, you have that advantage. So yes, some of you are much more adept at being adaptable than are others. But I still challenge you, looking back over the course of your life, looking back over the last 24 hours, were, were, were your worst moments, the, the moments where you've most betrayed everything that you've set out to be as a Christ follower, were they not moments where you were surprised? Some of you were struggling with addictions. Is, is, it, is it not true that, that part of the dynamic there is you can numb yourself from the unexpected? Isn't that what goes on there? Maybe, maybe you're experiencing unexpected singleness, unexpected joblessness, any number of different things, and you're self-medicating through drugs, through alcohol, through any number of things. See, what I, what I love about James is he's taking the spotlight off of them. He's removing the opportunity to, to be a victim, and he's saying, listen, Here's what you can do. You can know that surprises are coming. A friend, as I was studying through this stuff, a friend of mine back east that I went to grad school with. I'm sorry, James isn't talking about any of that. His wife and, and, and small children were in a terrible car accident. All of them were hospitalized. It was a pretty brutal deal. I was following it on Facebook as he was making posts, and I caught myself dreading that happening to, to my wife and my family. And then I think because of James and everything that I was learning here, caught myself going, you're wasting your energy. Like to dread that is a waste of energy. Unexpected things are coming, Adam. Surprises are inevitable. And I think if you look over, back over scripture, one of the real fascinating studies that, that I did that I don't have time to get into this morning is if you look at the book of Exodus and Israel when they were, when they were coming out of Egypt. And remember, like, they'll, they'll do these things like, where did that come from? Like, God just delivered you from Egypt with 10 plagues, and now you think he's not God because you're thirsty? It doesn't make sense. What you see is that the erratic behavior is always connected to a surprise. Every time Israel thought they <laughs> <laughs> the erratic behavior is tied to a surprise. No, it's tied to sin and unbelief. I could predict what God was going to do next, and it didn't happen. They started to disbelieve. And it's as though God is saying in the scriptures, listen, your circumstances are a terrible gauge of who I am. Terrible gauge. So we can either spend our lives, I think, completely dreading the unexpected, even trying to avoid it. Or we can understand that they're dangerous. We can beware of the unexpected. And, and here's my big challenge for, for this week is, and know what they look like when you experience them. Like, you don't get the advantage of always knowing when you're going to experience them. But I think the more we can close the gap between the moment we start experiencing one and the moment we're emotionally aware that we're experiencing one, that can make all the difference in the world.
It can prevent you from sending the email, from making that comment, from making all those generalizations about your in-laws. It can just stop the, the flood of emotion. Like if you can begin to identify. Oh, yeah. All we got to do is identify a surprise when it pops up and we won't sin. That's the sin busting solution offered. in no, it's not. This is not what the scriptures say. This is just group therapy and utter nonsense. Here's what this feels like. And, and, and a medical doctor will, will tell you, like, there are some predictable physical responses that you have to these moments. Some of you, your, your face goes red. Some of you, it's just red all the time. Some of you, your, your palms get sweaty. Some people have bowel issues when these happens. I mean, there's any number of different medical responses you have to these moments. I th- oh, yeah, you can stop bowel problems if you would just learn how to cope with surprises. Boy, this is some really useful and relevant information, isn't it? I think that James is saying you should understand those things can wreck your life. and you. <laughs> James isn't talking about surprises and how they wreck our lives. I mean, do you have you passed basic first grade reading comprehension? Come on, Adam. You should understand when you're experiencing them and try to close the gap. Know what they look like. Know what they feel like. There's another psychologist uh, that, that I was... Uh, Someone made me familiar with his work when Teresa and I were at a conference this last winter. And, and, and he, I, I didn't know it at the time, but as I've done some research since, he's one of the most respected child psychologists of the 20th century. He, he did a whole bunch of work surrounding uh, um, fairy tales. And what he found is that a, a child who is familiar with the classic fairy tales actually grows up to be a more adaptable adult. That, that the three little pigs... And I don't know, Beauty and the Beast, and I, I have boys, so we don't spend a lot of time watching the Disney movies, but you're, you, you're with me, right? Like the Little Red Riding Hood, that, that, that a child who, who knows them, what, what seems to, he, he concludes, seems to have somehow learned emotionally that, that the unexpected is going to happen. That a big bad wolf is going to make for a bad day. And somehow emotionally they've learned to adapt to that reality then. And rather than quit, rather than give up, rather than throw a fit, rather than get all mad, they've learned to almost expect surprises. And then I think what he says that is relevant to this morning is, and they seem to have this understanding that what's left is to adapt. Yeah, I have no idea where he's getting any of this. This is definitely not in James chapter 4. What's left is to deal to move forward. Here's, here's my challenge to you, to you this week. Spend some time analyzing what are those moments that you've most had to seek forgiveness for? The moments where you said and did things that you most regret. Were they tied to surprises? Don't, I, don't, I don't want to just convince you that would be cultic. I, I, want you to, I want to make a suggestion and you to take... Yeah, Adam, let me give you a challenge. I challenge you to actually read, you know, like large portions of Scripture. Go back and read like James, like the whole letter. It's, you can do it in really like 10, 15 minutes. Um, go ahead and read it and read it in context. And I challenge you to find the passage where James talks about the danger of surprises. I, I bet you're not going to find it. Take it back and test it in your own experience. And then should you buy that what James is saying and what I'm trying to stand on his shoulders and say is... Yeah, actually, James didn't say this at all. Um, And so I don't need to buy into what James is saying because James didn't say this. And you didn't even give people the solution that James came up with right there in chapter 4. The surprises are dangerous. Then would you begin to entertain the idea that part of what Jesus wants to do with you next is to make you aware of a surprise when you experience one. 
to develop the type of self-awareness. Like what, what I found myself doing, it's so nerdy and it's not 100% correct because I'm not perfect at this by any means still, but, but to literally in my head st- stick like a garage sale style label on whatever I'm experiencing and just, that just says surprise. To just put it out there and just label it. And so that I would know emotionally that, Adam, what you're dealing with here may or may not be the end of the world. It may or may not be just. It may or may not be bad, which is what we're going to talk about last week. It may or may not be something that you should try to prevent. But at the very least, first and foremost, understand it was unexpected. And therefore, all of your responses are very, uh, they're, they're hazy until you work through that. Would you be willing to entertain that you're not a disappointment to Jesus? that he's very aware of both your personal and emotional and spiritual tendencies, and that for thousands of years what he's been saying to people who have sought to follow him is, listen, surprises pose problems. So learn to identify them. Surprises pose problems. No, the scriptures don't teach this, especially James. This is ridiculous. Paul talks about bearing one another's burdens. Which is, we don't necessarily talk like that. What he's saying is Christ followers need to help each other out. I wonder if one of the ways we could serve one another, and certainly this is one of those things you could do in a very um, unkind fashion. But I wonder if, if part of the way we can bear one another's burdens, the way we could serve one another would be to help one another. To go, listen, I understand what you said. I understand that was really mean that she said that to you. I understand that that was really unfortunate that that happened. But can I just point out that you're dealing with something unexpected right now? Can I just point out that, it, that among other things, you're surprised. And, and so let's, let's slow down, let's buy some time, and let's move forward. Could it be that in your marriage with your kids... Uh, as you lead among your office, that, that one of the new principles, one of the new dynamics would be to create a culture where you just kind of go like, hey, that's a surprise. So everybody know, like we're dealing with one, like hazard suits on, dad's been surprised, it could get ugly. <laughs> Those types of deals. Finally, you know, we often talk in, in church circles about the Holy Spirit and these really what I would call ethereal um, some of you would call freaky ways. Oftentimes we talk about the Holy Spirit, like his sole purpose is to help us have goosebumps when we sing a song and things like that. And, and for me, I found myself this week so grateful for God's plan just because as I, as I think through those through processes of like identifying them and having other people identify them, I'm reminded that, that, that Jesus is not just a self-help program, but that he, he's intimately involved in the process. And that what he said is when you believe in him, when you believe in the resurrection, that he would actually send himself, his Holy Spirit, who would come and dwell us. And you can't cut you open and find it, but when you have the Holy Spirit leading you, you kind of understand the deal. And, and that part of the advantage then of following him is that he would help you identify this stuff. Would you pray a simple prayer this week that just says, uh, Holy Spirit, I, I give you permission to point out to me when I'm dealing with surprises. In fact, I'm begging you to make me aware of surprises. Doesn't mean they're not going to be hard. Doesn't mean there's not going to be conflict we have to deal with. Doesn't mean people aren't going to die and there's still going to be tragedy and, and we're still going to be alone and ashamed and embarrassed and depressed. and So I'm supposed to ask God the Holy Spirit to help me identify surprises in my life. Oh, man. The, the, ah! Anxious and all those different things. But would you just help me be aware so that I can close the gap between the unexpected and the stupid things I'm prone to do?
Listen, if you're here this morning and, and you're not how you, sure how you classify yourself, whether you'd call yourself a Christian or not, or maybe you used to be, or maybe you want to be, there's, there's nothing super complex. It's believing that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, that he really did raise from the dead, that there's something. Okay, I'm going to back this up because I want you to hear his gospel, okay? Uh, you know, this is his summary of, you know, the basics of Christianity. See if you can note what's missing because... Well, he he tells the basics of Christianity about as accurately as he handles um, John chapter. I'm sorry, James chapter four, verse one through uh, two point. You know, six. We didn't get two verses. We got one point six six verses. And, and we're still going to be alone and ashamed and embarrassed and depressed and anxious and all those different things. Yeah, I backed the tape up. But would you just help me be aware so that I can close the gap between? the unexpected, and the stupid things I'm prone to do. Listen, if you're here this morning and, and you're not how you, sure how you classify yourself, whether you'd call yourself a Christian or not, or maybe you used to be, or maybe you want to be, there's, there's nothing super complex. It's believing that Jesus was the Christ. The so j- believing Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Okay, what does that mean? Messiah, that he really did raise from the dead. That, there- that he really rose from the grave. Yeah, that's important. There's something incredibly supernatural that happens between you and God by way of forgiveness. That- something incredibly supernatural by way of forgiveness. What exactly does that mean? That, that he grants forgiveness in a way. Not- so he grants it. Okay. Nothing else can or has. And then that the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells you. Uh-huh. No repentance. Um, so, so there's this supernatural thing that occurs that's kind of like... Kind of forgiveness, supernatural forgiveness thingy, and you know that's kind of important. And uh, huh, you're right. Uh huh. We continue. And you say, well, that sounds like a leap. And we say, yeah, that's why we call it faith, not knowing. Yet you didn't show me any of this from a biblical passage. It's believing. And here would be the way I'd challenge you, just for the week. Suspend your disbelief. Just put it on pause. Regarding surprises. Pause. And live as though there is a God who does have a Holy Spirit, who is willing to teach you and guide you through life. Guide me through life so that I can learn how to navigate surprises and their toxic effects. And then a week from now, reanalyze. See if, see if God's capable of, of showing up. Because what... This- <laughs> See if God's capable of showing up. I don't even know what it means. Scriptures tell us is that, that he'll, he'll never disappoint the person who earnestly seeks him. All right, so there you go. That was the um, surprise, beware of surprises, with 1.66 verses for a 40-minute long sermon. Yeah, um, I think we've beat that horse to death. Time to dismount. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs> <laughs>